Hello, hello. Are we good to go? Hey, guys, thank you so much for uh, having me back. Like Paul said, my name is Jordan, and I went to school here, um, I guess, 10 years ago this year. We graduated, which is pretty crazy. So my wife and three kids are in the balcony, and so if uh, you hear stomping or screaming, um, it is not the Holy Spirit. It is those kids up there. So um, I'm excited to be here. Guys, I want to start with a question so we can all get on kind of the same page here. I want to ask the question, can we all agree that some things are just better than others? I think that we can all agree to that, and, and I want to put it to, to the test a little bit here. So um, we're going to ask ourselves, are some things better than others? Yes, first of all, Paul Brandis's outfits are better than your outfits. We're going to prove it. Slide one right here. Let's keep it classy to start off. <laughs> the classic wedding look, we got the... We got the bow tie, we got the suspenders, Paul looking good, keeping it classy. Second slide, let's turn it up a little bit. Here we go. Yeah, too much sauce. Uh, the black is a good look, the double, the headband and wristband. I can't tell if this is like a, are you not entertained gesture to the crowd? Uh, you were begging for a call in the lane, that was my second thought. Yeah, so one of those, but he can go athletic. Next one here, I don't even know what was happening here. Um, oh, okay. So, Princess Bride, you weren't robbing Seamart, so that's good. Um, it takes a real man to pull off leather, Paul, I got to tell you. And then last one here, uh, I'm at a loss, dude. I looked at this for a long time, and I was like, what? Like, the best I can gather, this girl's like a villain. She's like Snowflake Girl, and you're like Magneto Boy, and you're like going to beat her in some way, and you're also really enjoying either cookies or chicken nuggets. I don't know which, but you're really getting into it. And once again, the spandex, the cape. It's just a good look, Paul. It's just a good look. So Paul Brandis's outfits are better than yours. With this next one, I thought it would be something that's unifying, but then I remembered how many Californians go to Sterling, and we may have a fight on our hands. But the next one that I want to talk about is that Whataburger is objectively better than In-N-Out. Thank you. There's one believer in the room. Let's go. All right, listen. Listen. First of all, first of all, yeah, hit me up when In-N-Out gets a Dr. Pepper shake. Like, that's all you need to know, literally. It's, it's fantastic. Last one. This one's going to upset some people, but it's going to make the right people happy. Um, Campbell, better than Kilborn, objectively. I mean, as someone who lived in both for equal amount of time, I can tell you objectively. Um, do I have asbestos poisoning from Campbell? Yes. But it was great to live there. So you take the good, you take the good with the bad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I weighed like 140 because I sweat every night in my bed in, in Campbell, so... Man. Well, hey, whether you agree with these wildly biased opinions or not, the fact is that some things are better than others. And, and the idea that I want to give to you today and convince you of, or maybe remind you of if you are a follower of Jesus, is my next slide. And that's that Jesus is better. It's that he is better than anything in our lives. And the sooner that we realize that and the sooner that we fully live into that, the better it's going to be for us. And this is actually the focus of the book of Hebrews. Um, I don't know if you've read Hebrews, but this is the author's whole idea in the book is, is telling this Jewish audience in Jerusalem, hey, Jesus is better than anything you've ever encountered, and he's better than anything that you will encounter. And so we're not going to go through the whole book, but I want to give you a really quick flyover and then some applications um, of this here. So if, if you look at the next slide, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, the author gets right to it. He doesn't mince words with the first three verses of Hebrews in talking about how superior Jesus is to everything. He says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So it's obvious, Jesus is superior, and he starts off by telling us that. And then he goes through the rest of the book, and we're not going to get into specifics, but he talks about these things that this community would have valued so highly and been tempted to fall back into and worship rather than Jesus. He says, Jesus is better than all these things. Um, the next slide it shows, specifically, he says, Jesus is better than the angels in chapter 1, better than Moses in chapter 3, better than any high priest in chapters 4 and 5, and better than the old covenant itself in Hebrews 8, which is how they got right with God before Jesus. So guys, we know from this letter that Christ is superior to anything that the early church would have encountered, and I want to convince you that that's still true today, that even though it's thousands of years later, that Christ is still uh, worthy of being supreme in your life too. And I don't think that our temptation is probably to esteem Moses or the old covenant higher than Christ. I don't think that's our struggle. But if we're looking at this honestly, man, there are times in our lives where we all believe that there are things there are things other than Jesus, Jesus that are better than him. Does that make sense? I am so tempted to elevate other things in my affections and strive for other things harder than I strive after Jesus, even after knowing him for so many years. And I think that this, this comes largely out of our view of sin. Um, if you're not familiar, sin is anything that separates us from God. God commands us to not only avoid sin, but to flee from it and repent of it. When I was young, I viewed sin um, like that, that forbidden fruit that was hanging in the garden, right? It was this thing that looked good and beautiful, and I was sure that it would fulfill me. And I really wanted to try it, but I couldn't because I didn't want to make God angry. And so I obeyed God not out of affection for Jesus, but out of fear of what he would do if I stepped out of line and kind of resenting him a little bit. Like, God, you know there's some really great things out there I could try, but you don't want me to because you're holding me back for yourself, I know this is kind of a childish thought, and like saying it, I even feel silly telling you guys, but to be honest, I think we fall into this more often than we would like to admit, right? That, that it can become this transactional thing between us and God, and it's not really about affection anymore. It's really about thinking that he's trying to keep something from us. Guys, this view of sin, it misses the point of God's command to avoid it, because he doesn't separate us from our sin because it's more fun than he is, but because it is inferior to his plan for us in every way possible. Guys, sin is less fun, it's less fulfilling. It goes against the desire that God has for your life. Sin takes away from your flourishing, it never ever adds to it. No one has ever willfully engaged in sin and come out the other side better for it. In, in human history, it hasn't happened yet. And it will never ever happen. Guys, I want you to know God keeps you from sin the way that a mother keeps a hot stove from her child, right? Think about that. A little kid reaches up for a stove and the mom swats the hand away, not because she thinks that stove is so fun and the kid's going to have more fun with the stove than with her and she's jealous, right? No. She knows the danger, the harm that awaits that child if they achieve their goal of reaching for that thing they shouldn't. And it's the same with God. He knows what's best for us. And as his children, he wants, uh, he wants that for us. God forbids sin in our lives because he knows that he is better than the sin we crave and that when he is the highest affection in our hearts, that we can truly be who he made us to be. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this, and you can put this up so students can follow along too. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, 
and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. That Lewis there is saying that you see these things that you want. You want to go live your own life and do your own thing, and you think those are too lofty for God, that he could never dream up something as fun as that. And the truth is when you're doing that, you're, you're playing in mud pies, right? You're, you're conceiving the most fun, fulfilling thing that you could do, and, and you forget that the creator made that, and he sees that, and he says, maybe that's right for you, maybe it's not, but I'm taking you somewhere, and you've got to trust me, and you've got to go with me, otherwise you're just playing in mud pies, right? And, and you think it's as good as it can get, but man, he wants to take you somewhere, somewhere so much better. There's a story that Philip Yancey tells. Philip Yancey's a Christian author that I really enjoy. He is from Colorado Springs, and he talks about a time when he wanted to load his family up in the car and drive them from the Springs to Disney World in Florida. And God bless him, because I'm not brave enough for that. But on the first leg of the trip, he gets his family loaded up, and they're driving. Their first night that they spend is in Junction City, Kansas. Um, and if you've been to Junction City, you know that this picture right here is pretty representative of the motel scene in Junction City. So it's this little dinky Motel 6. They've got a pool. The kids jump out of the car. They're stoked. They're like, yes, we're here. We've got a pool. This is going to be the best vacation ever. They get unpacked, and uh, the kids jump in the pool. They're having a good time. Well, that night, they go to bed, get up early the next morning, got to finish that drive to Florida, right? And so Philip and his wife are loading the van and the kids want to go back to the pool. They're like, what the heck, guys? We just got here. We want to be in the pool longer. And Philip, the dad, is saying, guys, I'm trying to take you somewhere even better. If you would trust me, let's go. we got to get on the road. we got to get to Disney World. And the kids are pitching a fit in this Motel 6 parking lot in Junction City, Kansas. The kind of thing where you drive by and you're like, yo, I'm glad that's not me right now. Because they want to stay at this little dinky pool. And they think this is the ultimate thing. And they don't get that their dad is trying to take them to the happiest place on earth if they will just get in the car and go with him. And that's such a funny scene to think about. But man, that is our hearts. That is my heart. That my father wants to take me somewhere. And so often I am so content with playing in the Motel 6 pool because I can't imagine he's got something better for me because I know best, right? It's so true in my heart. I wonder if it's true in your heart as well. The next slide is a Dallas Willard quote. He's quoted as saying that we must first believe that God is both good and great if we're going to trust him with our lives. In other words, unless you believe that there is a God and that he is good in the sense that he wants your best, that he has your best at heart, and he is great in the sense that he is able to accomplish that for you, until you believe those things about God, you will not trust him with your life. Guys, I think that these quotes and these stories, they all point to the same thing, that at the root of sin a lot of times is this distrust of God. It's this belief in this lie that we have to create goodness for ourselves. That if we don't make our way and we don't fulfill our dreams and we don't follow our heart, then nobody will. And if we don't dream up the biggest dream for ourselves and do it ourselves, then it's not gonna happen because it's up to us. That's a lie that Satan feeds us and he loves when we buy into it. Guys, I'm here to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. And if you trust your father enough and you get in the car, and you keep going with him, he's going to take you somewhere better than where you are right now. 
I, uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you two applications today, okay? And I made them the same letter, so hopefully you can remember them even 10 minutes after chapel ends. But I want to tell you that Jesus is better than your idols and than your iniquities, okay? Jesus is better than your idols and your iniquities. So let's unpack that really quickly with the time that we have left. First of all, Jesus is better than our idols. Tim Keller is a Presbyterian minister in New York City. He leads a great church there. He writes a lot of good books. Um, And he says this about idols. He says, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Think about that. If that's his definition of an idol, then I think we might have an idol problem. I'm not saying you're hiding something in your dorm closet that you worship every night on an altar. Not like that, but we've all got things that we allow to to capture our imagination and strive for harder than Jesus, right? And Keller calls those things idols. In his book, Gospel and Life, he's got this chart, this idol chart of the four most prevalent idols in American culture. And it's these right here. Power, approval, comfort, and control. When I first saw this, my heart was tied in knots because I see myself up there. I wonder if you see yourself up there. It's so easy to let these idols come into our lives and take over. But there's something else I want you to notice about this chart. These things on the left side that we're calling idols, they're not inherently bad things. These are neutral words, right? Seeking power, approval, comfort, and control. Those aren't in and of themselves bad. And so these desires for these things, they're not inherently sinful. It gets sinful when we want them too much. It's the degree to which we desire these things, not the desire itself. Does that make sense? There are several places in the New Testament where we see the words sinful desire or lust of the flesh translated from the Greek word epithumia. And you can show that up here. This, this Greek word is actually um, a compound word, and when that happens in Greek, it's really important. And so epi meaning over and thumia meaning desire. So what we're, what we're to take from this is that these desires aren't always evil in and of themselves, but it's when we get them out of order that they become evil, right? That they have the potential to become idols for us. Guys, you need to know that God made you with desires and passions, okay? And I think sometimes in the church, we don't really say it, but it can become assumed that any desire or passion outside of directly, something directly for God, it, can be, it is sinful, right? Like, like we feel bad about desires and passions that we have outside of the church and outside of God, and it's like, am I allowed to have that, right? But God is a God of desire. He desires you, and you are made in his image. So doesn't it make sense that his creation would also desire just as he does? He made us for desire. He made us for passion, right? I'm going to look at things like competition, uh, sexual desire, relational desire, right? Desire for KU to hang another banner. That was a big one for me over this last month, right? These are not in and of themselves bad things. It's only when we supersede them, when we put them up over Christ in our hearts, that they can become idols, that they can become epithumias, and that's when we fall into sin. I want to know if you guys have ever built something up in your mind or in your heart so much that it fell flat, that you put so much expectation or hope into something and built it up in your mind as this really great thing. So even when it happened and it probably went fine, it fell kind of flat because it, it folded under the pressure that you put on it. I know that I've been there. Maybe it's a relationship or a trip you're going to take or an experience and you've built it up and there's no way that it can live up to your expectations because it just wasn't made to do that. 
Guys, that's what happens when we put secondary affections as our ultimate affection. It's what happens when we take secondary things in our lives that were given to us as good gifts by God and we make them the ultimate thing. That's why God says he has to be the ultimate thing. There can be no idols in our lives because he is the only entity, the only thing in existence that can live up to the pressure of all those expectations, that is is sturdy enough to hold our ultimate hope. There's nothing else that can do it. And so that is why Jesus is better. That's why he's better than our idols because he can stand up to those things. The second thing that Jesus is better than is my iniquity. My iniquity. And if you have been around church, you know that iniquity means sin. And I think we know that Jesus is better than our sin. That's a pretty basic thought. But here's the thing. In reality, we can become so dependent on sin that it actually binds us up, right? That it tangles us up. We can come, become so dependent on sin that, that it's really hard to cut out of our lives. That we end up hiding our sin from others. We even make up excuses as to why it should be there, right? This can happen to us really easily. Lewis writes another book, and there's a scene in this book that talks about this. The book is called The Great Divorce. And the story is this. The story is of a, of a narrator, a guy who goes to the next life, and he observes what he sees. And, and this scene that he observes in this story is, is this ghost, this little ghostly figure kind of walking towards him. And as the figure gets closer, he sees there's a little red lizard on the figure's shoulder. And as it gets even closer, he hears the ghost arguing with the lizard. I hate you. I hate you. Won't you go away? And then he sees the lizard lean over and whisper into the ghost's ear, and the ghost is good with him again. And this kind of cycles a few times until he gets right up next to him. And as he gets next to him, this angel of light appears, this huge angel 100 feet tall, and he confronts this ghost. And he says, hey, if you want me to get rid of that lizard for you, I can take care of it. And immediately the lizard starts whispering into the ghost's ear again. He says, hey, you don't need him to kill me. I'll be good. I promise I'm not that big of a threat. I'm not a big deal. You can kill me anytime you want to on your own. You don't, you don't need to worry about me. I'll be fine. And so the ghost starts to tell the angel the same thing. Hey, he's not a big deal. I've got him under control. He acts out sometimes, but I can handle it. It's all good. Well, the conversation ensues, and the angel says one last time to the ghost, if you want, I can kill it, but I need your permission. And the ghost relents, and in a moment of strength, he says, okay, angel, you can kill it. And so the angel reaches down. He grabs the lizard off the ghost's shoulder. It burns the ghost terribly. The angel crushes the lizard, and the lizard falls dead on the ground. And sitting there wounded, the ghost is recovering from his burn. But as the lizard falls dead to the ground, the outer shell of the ghost is broken apart. And up out of this little shell of a dark ghost bursts this huge man, this new free man, almost as tall as the angel. And you see someone being liberated for the first time. And he stretches out his arms and he's, he's a new person and he's free. And that would be good enough on its own, but it gets better. Because as he starts to stretch his arms, the lizard then begins to crack. And up out of him bursts this big, beautiful white horse, the most beautiful horse you've ever seen. And the man gets on the horse and he rides off into the distance. And it's this beautiful picture of what Christ can do with our sin. If we will submit our iniquity, submit our sin, no matter how ugly or broken or secret it is, if we will submit it to him, he will not only free us from it, but he will turn that ugly, horrible lizard, that ugly, horrible thing, into a beautiful part of our story. And he will use it to set others free as well. 
And so I need you to know that Jesus is better than your sin, and not just because he'll set you free from it, not just because he's taken you somewhere better than your sin could ever take you, but because he is a redemptive God, and he is the only one who can take something ugly in your life and make it beautiful, who can take your shame and make it your glory, right? Who can take your weakness that you despise and make it your strength. It's a beautiful story of what Jesus can do with our iniquity if we will just let him do it. I want to leave you guys with a challenge today, and the challenge um, is this. It begins in Revelation 2. And in Revelation 2, Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he's reminding them of who he is. And he says, guys, you used to love me. I was your first love, actually. We used to be good. But other things have sprung up in my place, and other things have crept up the affection ladder in your heart, and you now value other things more than you value me. And I see it, and I hate it. I hate that I've been replaced by other things. He says, you guys have lost the hunger for me that you once had. Now, guys, America is a great place. I love living here. There's lots of comforts and conveniences, but I think that sometimes we can relate to that because it is hard to follow Jesus with everything you have in America. It's really, really easy to follow Jesus with half of what you have in America. It's probably the easiest thing ever because cultural Christianity is so prevalent. But to really follow him above everything and to, to place him above everything in your heart. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. Guys, I have to work so hard to not let my affections be taken hostage. I have to work so hard to remain hungry for God because it's not natural for me. And faith is this downward moving escalator. If I stand still, I will move backwards. And you have to fight to climb it if you're going to stay hungry for God in this culture. And so I want to leave you with this question today. Do you hunger for God? Do you really, really hunger for him when it comes down to it? Is he the thing in life that you want more than anything else? Can you really say that you live like Jesus is better than anything else in your life? Or is there something else that is competing for that affection? Maybe you have known Jesus. Maybe you have had an experience where you responded to his goodness and his grace and you're in relationship with him. But just like that church at Ephesus, you have allowed other things to creep up in your life and overtake your affection for him, and you feel it. If that's you, I encourage you to do some soul work today. I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to increase your desire, increase your hunger for God, because he is the one that ultimately comes from. And I also encourage you to engage in the disciplines, things that will cultivate your love, your hunger, your affection for Jesus. I don't know what that is for you. But I encourage you to think about it and do it because your hunger for God is more important than anything else in your life. Or maybe you don't know God at all, right? Maybe, um, maybe something you heard today resonated with you as possibly true, but you're not really following Jesus right now. Maybe it was when I said that nothing in this world is really worth living for. Maybe that struck a chord with you because you see that around you. You're searching for something to live for and you're not sure what's worthy of your life. And you think that maybe it's got to be something outside of this world because everything you see around you is not worth giving your life for. Man, I encourage you to keep seeking that out if that's you. If you're asking those questions, keep seeking it. Keep talking to your Christian friends about it. Tonight, in your room, think about it before you go to bed. Ask God, God, if you are real, God, show me what you want for me. If it's you, then show me more of you. If it's something else, show me something else. But if you're real, I need you to show me. And if you remain open to that, I'm confident that he'll speak to you. Or maybe you're in this last group. Maybe 
you have doubts about this whole thing. Um, you have doubts that Jesus really is your ultimate hope. What I've said doesn't really strike a chord with you, and that's fine. We've all been there at some point. But if that's you, if you would do me the favor of going and reading Ecclesiastes 2 tonight, because if you truly think that there's anything in this world that's going to fulfill you and, and take you to a place that you really want to go outside of Jesus, I would love for you to read Ecclesiastes 2 and have a conversation with somebody about it. Because Ecclesiastes 2 is written by King Solomon. At the, at the height of his kingdom, he was the wealthiest man in existence. He had every resource, every woman, every experience, every place, every trip, every luxury at his beck and call. And he sought to find pleasure outside of God, and he sought all of them out to the fullest extent. And at the end of his journey, he came up short. And so he writes Ecclesiastes 2, and he talks about that there is nothing, no matter what he gave himself, that would fill that hole in him, right? That would, that would ultimately please him. There's no pleasure he gave himself that really lasted long enough. It was just a dopamine hit. And so if that's you and you're searching and you don't, you don't think it's Jesus, but you know you haven't seen it yet, man, read that chapter and see, see what it says to you. Guys, I'm so grateful that I got to share this with you today. And I, I just ask you, if, if this is the first thing you're hearing, hearing I want to leave you with this, guys. That no matter your circumstance, no matter your accomplishment, no matter your trajectory in life, no matter the pain or success of the past, no matter your hope for the future, whatever that might be, I just want to tell you this truth, that Jesus is better than all those things. And it's good to have passions and affections and to be driven for things, but at the end of the day, if Jesus isn't at the center of it, you're going to end up like King Solomon, man. You're going to search for something that's not there. So Jesus is better than all of it. I hope that that truth encourages you today, and I hope that it challenges you today too. Let me pray, and we're going to end it right there with that. Father, I thank you so much for these students. Um, I envy the position that they're in, that they get to be at a school that cares about them, um, that wants to equip them for life. Um, Father, I know that you love them so much, and whether they know you or not, I pray that you draw them to yourself today, that you would use conversations, you would use little things um, that only they will recognize, little clues that you're, you're in love with them, God, and that they would see that that's the truth. Father, I apologize for the times. I repent. I beg your forgiveness when other things um, get more of my heart than you do, when I'm more hungry for stuff than I am for you. And so, God, I repent of that. And I, I pray over this whole group that if anyone feels that as well, that it's hard to stay hungry for you, that you would bring people around them, that you would show them your truth and your word, that you'd speak to them in the quiet, and bring them back to yourself, God, because we want to want you, right? We want to want you. It's not always in there. We need your Holy Spirit to ignite that flame again, God. So be that for us this morning. Father, it's in your son's name we pray all these things. We're so grateful for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.